from MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms. It's the show all about you and your rights. I'm Ezra Wall, filling in for Sharita Brent today. Joining me today, Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, and our guest for the hour is Catherine Janice, an expert in water law and a member on the Research Council for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Today we're discussing water law. We'll establish a difference between surface water and groundwater and some legal disputes between various states. We'll also talk about the Safe Drinking Water Act. That's a big issue in Mississippi these days. And what happens? when contaminant levels are exceeded. Call us with your questions. It's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms, and it continues after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is In Legal Terms. It's the show all about you and your rights. I'm Ezra Wall, filling in for Sharita Brent today. Joining me, as usual, it's Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest this hour is Catherine Janice, an expert in water law. And uh, uh, Catherine is on the Research Council for the National Sea Grant Law Center, which is at the uh, University of Mississippi School of Law. And today we're discussing, you guessed it, water law. And we'll talk about just what that is and the difference between between uh, groundwater and and uh, and and uh, and the other kind of water that I can't find on my list right now. And so, uh, yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll be uh, ready to go here in just a minute. So, no, we're happy to take your calls, by the way, throughout the hour. You can join our conversation by calling 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. You can email legalterms at mpbonline.org. And we would love to have you join our conversation, whether you have a clarifying question or whether you just uh, out of the blue want to want to throw something at us that uh, that you think might apply to the issue that we're talking about today, we would love to hear from you at 877-MPB-RING. So first of all, uh, 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 Professor Gershon and uh, Ms. Janice, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning, Ezra. Hey, it's great to have you on the show always. We miss Sharita, but uh, thank you for doing it. Uh, yeah, miss- thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to uh, be talking about this. And uh, and uh, surface water was the other kind of water. I finally did find it. Um, so now I'm fully prepared to talk about all of the kinds of water. Uh, but let's let's talk about that. Just uh, at, I, I guess the first question that I had when Sharita sent me this list, and it's a good thing she put it first on the list, is what is water law? I didn't realize that that was a category of of legal study. Yes. So actually, water law is actually a term of art within the legal community, um, which most people don't know. And so when someone who's a lawyer is specifically saying water law, what they're talking about is this framework that's guiding our decisions about how we're going to allocate freshwater resources. And so it's a generally a matter of state law. So each state kind of gets to determine their own rules and how they're going to allocate these water resources within their borders. And there's something that I always like to focus on when I talk about water law straight out is that it's a system that focuses on use. And so it's not necessarily about how we're going to conserve water resources, but what matters is how we're going to use water now for a specific purpose. And then 
how are we going to protect other users of water as well? And so the example I give sometimes is that domestic use, like us using our waters within our homes, is always the most protected use as compared to something else like an agricultural or industrial use. Um, but there is something to note is that while generally there's this broad body of law called water law that the area is actually split in a couple of fundamental ways that you've already kind of hinted out in the intro of the show. So surface water, which is, you know, water that's above the surface, like a lake, river, stream, has a different set of rules than groundwater, which is, you know, water underneath the surface, such as in an aquifer. And so they have two separate sets of legal principles. And then when we think about groundwater, I'll talk about later there's this kind of array of rules that apply to that, but surface water has this very stark regional difference about how it's split. And then just to note, I've said that it's mostly a matter of state law, but when there are these bigger interstate resources like the Mississippi River, there's kind of these federal rules and principles that do come into play. So uh, I was going to ask about that because you were talking about it being regulated separately by in the individual states. But wh when does something rise to the level that it might fall under the jurisdiction of, for instance, the the Environmental Protection uh, Administration? Sure. So that is, you know, general environmental law. And so generally, um, the rule for that is if it's, you know, it can affect interstate commerce. Um, and so that would be technically a definition of if something was navigable, and kind of can be used between the two states. And so those rules are kind of completely different than these rules that I'm talking about kind of with water allocation and the differences between the states on those rules. So I get... And, and Kathy... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Ezra. <laughs> no, no, I was no gonna go ahead. Have, I was going to ask Kathy because we were talking about something that I thought was really kind of crazy that I had never heard of before. And you know, water law is one of those areas that we have... Luckily, lucky to have specialists like, like her in this area that understand the law, but... I had a friend in Florida who was telling me that uh, they just passed a law in Florida that you can now collect water runoff, rain runoff, from your roof in a bucket that was not allowed before. And I thought, boy, that sounds crazy. But they had to pass a law to do that because uh, I, I, under, I understand that the rule was that you could not own that rain runoff. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? that is yeah, sure. And so that's a great example. Um, people often use Colorado for the same reason that also until recently had a rule that you couldn't collect. So a lot of people have these rain barrels on their property because they think they're being good for the environment. So they're reusing water to say water their plants or vegetables instead of using water from the tap. But in some of these states that have these strict kind of allocation rules about who has the right to use water in the state, something as simple as that kind of collecting water off your roof could be prohibited under the law. That's interesting because here in Mississippi where where water is, I, I guess I've never heard anything other than that it's fairly plentiful. Um, we we don't worry about things like that. In fact, we, we're here on MPB. We've got uh, Felder rushing every week telling us to set up rain barrels and everything in our yards and gardens. And yet out west where water is more scarce, you, you have a lot of regulation about about whether the water you're using is used to drink or to shower or to water your lawn and certain activities are, are prohibited and certain activities, uh, even if they're not prohibited, are, are widely discouraged. And uh, so you see a lot more stricter water management. Is, 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 that, is there any circumstance under which we're, we're likely to see anything like that here in Mississippi or is, is, is water just too plentiful a resource here for us to even worry about that? 
Well, see, that is going back to, so I started out with saying there's this kind of stark difference between the West and the East. Um, if I was able to show you a map, I would show you, but that's really based on the fact that kind of at this like split um, in the middle of the country, the East gets so much more rain um, and has so much more plentiful water resources than the West. And so the Western states from the beginning, since they were settled, had this issue about they were having people settle where there wasn't plentiful water supplies. And so they've been fighting over water rights in the West since settlement. And so people today still have water rights that they gained under their state's legal system from like 1870s per se. Um, and so those rights are still valuable and being contested and they're very marketable um, if you want to kind of trade them on the market. And so the reason why Mississippi doesn't have a kind of a strict rule like that is because we've always kind of had sufficient water supplies and we haven't had to. I will say that um, Mississippi is what we call regulated riparianism. So in our state, you know, us on our properties could have a well um, and kind of use water as we want to if you know, your well, you want to drill a well uh, over a bigger size, you do actually have to go to the state and ask for a permit to do that. Okay, but but for the most part, a, 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 a size large enough to accommodate, for instance, a single family home or something like that, that would typically be allowed? Yeah. Okay. So uh, speaking, speaking of what is and isn't allowed, there, there are laws, as you mentioned, uh, governed for the most part on the state level, but uh, in, in, uh, sort of generally covering the legislature as we do here in the news. I can't remember the last time that, that one of those things actually rose to the prominence of, of catching my eye as something that's being debated. How often are, are those laws uh, subject to scrutiny or how, how often are people lobbying for changes or adjustments or little tweaks to those, those laws as the, uh, through the course of uh, the legislature's normal operation? So as I said earlier, water law is really kind of focused on the here and now. And so the laws are always looking about how it's going to get to use water this year and for what purpose. And so when you really kind of see that push for a change, it's generally because there's some kind of water crisis that's happened. And so I said Mississippi has this permit system, and that system was actually developed um, in the past and tweaked again in two times when Mississippi did have real water issues because of a serious drought. So uh, we're on in legal terms this morning here on MPB Think Radio. Uh, our guest is uh, Catherine Janice, and of course we're joined by Professor Richard Gershon uh, the, of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And uh, we welcome your calls. So uh, so uh, pick up the phone and uh, dial eight seven seven MPB ring. That's eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send any questions you have uh, via email to Legal Terms at mpbonline.org. We would be happy to, an happy to answer any of your emails or, uh, or your phone calls. Uh, so uh, t let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, interstate water uh, disputes that, that go on. What, are, are these mostly applying to, like, rivers that flow from one state into the next, or, or, or are we talking about, like, like uh, aquifers that might be completely underground, that, that part of which is contained in one state and part in another state? So traditionally, it's always been the first one that you said. And so either these big interstate streams like the Colorado River or the Rio Grande 
that have been an issue of these states fighting over it. Another big one has always been the Great Lakes. So there's eight states that are using the Great Lakes. Um, and so they've, you know, in the past have kind of had issues about how they're going to use the water for what. But as you mentioned, aquifers, actually Mississippi is suing Tennessee right now under one of these interstate disputes. And it's actually the first case that's ever exclusively looking at water that's coming from an underground aquifer. So while kind of aquifers have come into play in those other states, they were primarily about surface water and not only about kind of these groundwater aquifers. And so this case with Mississippi suing Tennessee is the first of that kind. Interesting. Well, we are uh, we are uh, up against a break here. We're going to uh, take that. We will be happy to take your calls after that. This is in legal terms. Uh, so give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Send those emails to legalterms at mpbonline.org. We will take any and all questions. Uh, we're talking about water law today, and the discussion continues right after this on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It's in legal terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall, uh, sans music bed. I don't quite know what to do. Uh, we're, I'm filling in for Sharita Brent today. Joining me uh, is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and Catherine Janice, the res- uh, she's a research counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, welcome back, everyone, and thank you very much uh, for uh, being with us today. Uh, if you'd like to call the show today, it's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And we do have uh, we do have a caller on the line uh, on the road. Tom is on the road. I hope you're being safe while you're calling us, Tom. Thanks for calling. What's your question? I'm stuck in traffic right now, but my question is, who enforces the laws against uh, utility vehicles and uh, all-terrain vehicles uh, riding in, riding in uh, uh, what I think is public uh, public streams, and uh, uh, who's responsible to enforcing it, and who and who do you call to report uh, report that? All right, that's a that's a good question. Anybody want to tackle that that intersection of where some of our traffic laws might meet some of these water laws that we're talking about? Well, Ezra, I think you know that probably depends. I mean, it depends on where you are. If you're in a in a state park or or a federal park, I mean, they're going to have their own regulations of that that water. Um, you know, if it's just a, a stream in the forest somewhere, you know, there's not a lot of regulation on that. And as long as the person's not overtly polluting. 
I'm not sure. I, you know, I can't think of any. And so, um, yeah, again, it's really going to kind of depend on where the stream is and kind of how big it is. So if it's big enough that it's a stream that would fall under what we know as the public trust doctrine, which gives the right to stream beds of kind of these navigable waterways, like I talked about earlier with the pollution laws um, to the states. And so if it, that kind of water resource in the state would play some kind of role, and then it would be up to the state to kind of delegate to whatever department it wants to um, for enforcement abilities. And we see this in natural resources law a lot, actually, that um, – just because, say, like the Department of Fisheries is regulating something, they don't necessarily have enforcement authority, so they might have to actually call legal authority to enforce something. So I hope that helps somewhat. So in addition to calling whatever branch of local law enforcement might have jurisdiction over that particular area, which, of course, any citizen can do about any issue that concerns them, uh, I'm thinking one follow-up question might be how to judge whether somebody should make that call. Is it enough to simply see somebody in, for instance, a a body of water that you think they shouldn't be in, and so I'm going to call the cops on them? Or should that person take into consideration more they seem to be be doing something in that body of water that I think law enforcement should be alerted to. They seem to be uh, inhibiting it in some way or causing some kind of damage to to the environment or landscape or something like that. So again, yeah, that's going to really depend on whether or not it's a public or private resource. So if it's a public water body and the person's on it, they have every right to actually be on a public water body. And so unless they're doing something that you think is really... um, hurting resources or illegal in some other way, that's when you would call. You know, obviously, if it's a private water body, anyone can call and say, get off of there. You have no right to be on the water. Anybody who's been reading the news in recent days has seen some of these some of these water issues uh, coming up uh, due to uh, having to do with with Florida, but not the Florida versus Georgia case that we're going to talk about later. Instead, uh, an environmental facility has taken some some contaminated storage water and and something has happened to the uh, to to the reservoir in which that water is stored, a sinkhole, and and is causing that contaminated water to leak into. Uh, a, a major aquifer in that area. When something like that happens, and I'm, I'm not necessarily asking you to comment on that specific case, uh, but but when something like that happens, how, how do we determine whether that might fall under the water law areas of that state's water laws versus like federal environmental laws? Yeah. So again, as I opened up and said, there's kind of this split legally. Um, between these rules that kind of govern the allocation of fresh water for us to use versus these pollution laws. Um, and while that's true, that's also kind of a false kind of dichotomy because when a water quality issue is affecting the quantity of water, obviously then pollution is going to come into play with kind of water resources. And so with the allocation, obviously um, people can't use polluted water. And so, you know, the city or um, who's ever kind of providing water for the people are going to have to kind of find an alternate water source and able to do that. And so that's kind of when the two kind of intersect at that point in time. All right. We're on in legal terms. And if you want to call and join the show today, the number is 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. 
or email legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking about water law with Catherine Janice and uh, Professor Richard Gershon. And uh, speaking of, I, I mentioned a, a case that's in my notes uh, a moment ago, Florida versus Georgia. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me what, why that, what that case has to do with the issue that we're, we're talking about today, Florida v. Georgia. Sure. And so for those of you who don't know, Florida, Georgia, and Alabama have been fighting literally for decades over this kind of three-river system that's flowing through all the states. It's known in the legal world as the tri-state water wars. And so for years, they've been fighting over kind of the amount of water that Georgia is letting flow through that um, river system down to both Florida and Georgia. And what the issue is really is that Atlanta is growing and continues to grow. And so they're using this federal reservoir for drinking water and progressively have to kind of taken more and more water out of that system. And so this specific case with Florida now suing Georgia actually has to do with the Florida oyster industry. So those of you who are like oyster fans may have noticed that the Apalachicola oysters industry the last few years has really struggled and has been in a state of decline. And Florida is kind of a, is, is asserting that Georgia, by taking all this water out of the system and letting it go to Atlanta, has not let enough water kind of flow down into the Apalachicola Bay. And that's affected the salinity, which has kind of affected oyster health. So it's Florida's current way to kind of control what Georgia is doing with giving all this water to the city of Atlanta. And we're, almost, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it almost seems like, you know, that's inevitable, though, where you've got a, a stream that flows downhill, which, I mean, that's one way of looking at it, flowing south. I mean, Atlanta's going to get first crack at it. So it's like they got a big straw and they're sucking on the, you know, and there's only what, what they leave is what passes down to Florida and Alabama. So, I mean, how, do you, how would you stop that? And so it's really, it's a difficult, really, question. And so there's been, as I said, these series of cases, and one of them actually said, Atlanta, you have to stop taking the water out of this reservoir and get another water source. And it was, I think, what would happen was it would have thrown Atlanta back to, like, their water rights in 1983. And, like, immediately Atlanta was going to have to search for all these other water resources. So it's a really complicated public policy question because how do we deal with kind of this huge city in Atlanta and making sure everyone there has water rights while also protecting these downstream kind of users and whether or not they're people users or, you know, some kind of environmental issues like affecting the oysters in Florida. And so it's really this balancing test that the court will do to kind of see who needs the water more and kind of the benefits and harms. And so it's not necessarily a test, it's just the court kind of seeing what they think is the most fair, you know, result for that issue. Yeah, find another water source seems to be easier said than done. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> All right, we have uh, we have more callers on the line. If you'd like to join the show, it's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Your emails are welcome at legalterms at mpbonline.org. That's legalterms at mpbonline.org online.org. We're headed to South Alabama. We're talking uh, to Savannah. Uh, good morning, Savannah. What's your question today? Uh, good morning. I hope you can help me or at least lead me in the right direction. We will uh, do our best. Uh, if you are a property owner, which has, say, a canal off of a river, which we have lots of those here in lower Alabama, um, and you find evidence that someone has been pulling into your property and leaving, uh, do, doing some very illegal things. Now, my question is, 
it's on your property. Um, and obviously, if you, you're not the person who does that sort of thing, you weren't there when they did it. Um, but how do you, I mean, is that, do you call the Marine police? Do you call the local police? Do you call both? And how do you protect yourself? So I'm curious to know, Savannah, number one, how, how do you, what kind of uh, evidence do you have of the illegal things that are being done? How do you know that those illegal things are being done? And, and I, you know, I guess if it, doesn't, uh, if it doesn't give away some detail that you don't want to divulge, what kind of illegal activity are you talking about? Containers that are left behind. Okay, so like like alcohol containers or something like that, or I wish. Okay. There are all sorts of things that that can be made nowadays, sir. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. I was just trying. I'm trying to get as specific as I can. So you're talking about like drug activity or something like that? Yes, sir. Unfortunately, I am. Okay. And these people can be very dangerous. I realize. Yes, indeed. So it sounds like it's it sounds like uh, if and, and this is happening on your private property. Yes. OK, well, it's it sounds to me like uh, like a call to law enforcement might be in order. Uh, 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 Professor Gershon, say, do you call marine law enforcement? Do you call local law enforcement? Do you call both? I would start with local law enforcement. I mean, they'll, if they if it's out of their jurisdiction, they'll tell you who you need to call. But that would be a good starting point because you're talking about criminal activity. Uh, if nothing else, maybe they will uh, ask for the opportunity to surveil the property or something like that. I know if we if in my neighborhood, if you know we're not on the water, but if we have a, a problem, we call the police. They're willing to to drive around the neighborhood, you know, periodically during the day, and that may be what it'll take to uh, to, to keep these people off your property, but the starting point is always go to local law enforcement and they're really good about saying, well, that's not us, but you, then you need to make a call to whoever. All right. I, I hope that answers your question, Savannah. Thank you very much for calling. If you'd like to call the show, it's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Uh, we're talking about water law today and happy to take your calls and emails along the way as well. Uh, we, we were talking about a case, Florida versus Georgia, uh, which and talking about how, uh, how, how interesting it is to try to accommodate the major water needs of a, of a big city like Atlanta. Atlanta. There's, there's another case that we mentioned earlier, Mississippi versus Tennessee, in which uh, in in which Mississippi is uh, is involved in. You said earlier it was something to, something to do with uh, with with uh, groundwater rather than rather than surface water. Exactly, and so it's over this large aquifer, which depending on which state you're in, the name changes. Um, generally called Memphis Sands Aquifer, and it actually underlies Tennessee and Mississippi and actually goes down into Arkansas and Louisiana as well. And so the issue here is that we have, again, a a fairly big city, Memphis, right on the border between Tennessee and Mississippi. And so Memphis has traditionally always pumped a great deal of this kind of groundwater right at the border. And what happens with groundwater in particular is when you start pumping out a lot of groundwater, it creates what's kind of known as this cone of depression. And so it's going to create this dip. And so people kind of surrounding where that water is being pumped are then going to have to drill deeper to get um, down deeper into the wells. And so these kind of interstate aquifers, while there's many that exist throughout the nation, they've never kind of been a subject of this interstate kind of water dispute in the past before. 
Interesting. Well, well, we we are uh, talking about uh, water law today, and and we'll continue that conversation, and we'll be happy to take your calls. Our number is eight seven seven MPB ring eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to uh, take a short time out here uh, and uh, and uh, collect all those calls and emails, and uh, and we'll be back with more of in legal terms. I'm Ezra Wall filling in for Sharita Brent today. Our guests: Richard Gershon, professor of law at the University of Mississippi. School of Law, Catherine Janice, Research Counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And uh, we will uh, be right back with uh, you right after this on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It's In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio, and we're glad to have you here listening to us this morning. If you'd like to join the show, it's 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Professor Richard Gershon is here from the University of Mississippi School of Law and Catherine Janice, Research Counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law as well. So thank you both for joining us. This has been an interesting conversation so far. Uh, another aspect of uh, of of water and the way that water intersects with the law in so in so many different areas. We've heard a lot in the news nationally about Flint, Michigan, and the the crisis of lead in the water there, and all of the things that led to that. We've heard on a much smaller scale uh, here in Mississippi, particularly in the capital city of Jackson, where uh, that city's aging infrastructure has uh, ha- and and the old uh, pipes in some of the homes and so on has contributed to a certain amount of lead in in some areas of of that city's uh, drinking water an issue which i i think has been uh, dealt with but uh but in terms of uh, of contamination to the water that we drink how does that uh, wh- what's there to protect uh, consumers and citizens uh, in terms of 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 a legal remedy for unsafe drinking water yeah so um actual control of the pollution to the water would be regulated under the Clean Water Act. But what actually regulates um, the water that's coming into your house is what's known as the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so that's a federal law that Congress passed back in the 70s when they started to see that there was an abundant amount of contaminants in the water bodies. And so what it directs um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to do is kind of make a list of these contaminants that are harmful for us and kind of set levels that are meant to protect us from um, harmful health effects. And so then this EPA works with states and local governments who are actually providing the water to us as consumers to kind of um, how to best protect us and regulate and test for kind of these contaminants in water. And so lead is one of, 
you know, the most common one that is coming up about one of these contaminants that has these rules that local water suppliers and states are supposed to be following to make sure that we're not harmed by that amount of pollutant in the water. So if somebody suspects that they're, that, that the source of their drinking water uh, might not be quite up to snuff, what kind of recourse do they have? And so actually under the Safe Drinking Water Act, very um, little, actually. It's not as much as you want. So the act is really set out to make sure that at the communities at large are having safe amounts of drinking water. And so what kind of triggers these actions under the act is that Local communities are supposed to be testing water supplies. And, you know, for lead, the only time any action has to be taken is if over 10% of those samples are above this level that the EPA has set that says is too high for lead. And even at that point in time, what really has happened is if your water was one sample that was above, the government has to tell you that. So they have to go and take kind of these actions to kind of fix the water supply to make sure that it goes below that level again the kind of these individual houses, um, you have really no bar kind of these procedural deficiencies and what the government's doing under the law. You don't necessarily have that under the Safe Drinking Water Act kind of that recourse personally against the government. And it's not like you you taste lead or that you taste contaminants. So that's it's really hard for people to know. And it does seem like this affects poor communities like Flint and areas of Jackson more than, than more prosperous communities. So it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough situation, it seems like. Yeah, it's really, um, I think what Flint um, has really showed people, and then to a lesser extent these issues, like in Jackson, Mississippi, um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has had similar issues. It's kind of how reliant we are on our kind of local and state governments to really trust them to make sure that they're monitoring kind of the water that's coming in. The only other point I'll make on this um, which I do want to mention is if you have a private well in the United States, you have no regulation. And so it's up to you to kind of test your own water and make sure it's safe for yourself. The government is, you know, but for these bigger pollution um, laws that would be protecting resources at large, you have no protection to actually make sure the water coming into your house is safe to drink. Uh, Professor Gershon, you mentioned something that doesn't necessarily uh, have anything to do with a, a legal issue at all. But I, since you mentioned it, I, I wanted to just reiterate it, that some of these things that, that could contaminate your drinking water, I mean, certainly people with like old galvanized pipes with corrosion and stuff might have a certain metallic taste uh, in their water. But some of this pollution is, is not anything that you would be able to see or taste. So if you have concerns uh, to maybe contact your local officials and see what could be done about it because uh, because. Uh, these things are not necessarily something that you would notice uh, in in the course of your everyday activities. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to note just on that real quickly is that in Mississippi, if you do have a concern, you can actually, if you go on to either your water supplier's website, and so if you're in a city, you can go on and they'll, they'll actually have information about how you could take a water sample from your water and send it out to the state to actually get tested if you're concerned about the water in your house. And and that would be uh, on, on your municipality's website or whatever entity it is that, that, that uh, controls the flow of drinking water throughout the area where you live? Yeah, so that's the first place I would check. And if not, then um, maybe check the Department of Health for the state. They might also have information on their website. Okay. Um, but usually your city gives you a water report every year, and it should be readily available for you to kind of the steps you could take to get it 
sampled. Good advice indeed. Uh, back to the phones we go. If you'd like to join the show, it's 888-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. We're talking to Ted from Laurel. Ted, what's your question this morning? If uh, you own a parcel of land, say uh, a 40-acre parcel of land, and you have a stream that uh, runs through that uh, land, a uh, stream big enough for uh, motorboats, uh, bass boats, canoes, thing like that to travel. What control do you have over people who might come through there and uh, set up camps on the banks, uh, trash the place? Uh, who do you go to for help? So again, um, as I said earlier in the show, if it's a water source that's big enough to kind of be under kind of state regulation because it's, you know, navigable and people can go. People have the right to be on the water body and kind of float through. Um, If people are camping on your property and kind of leaving things behind, that's a trespass issue. And so, again, like Professor Gershon said before, that's classic trespassing. That would be your local, you know, law enforcement agency to call and say people are on my property in that way and shouldn't be. But if they're just peacefully floating by, they have the right to be there if it's a public waterway. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank You're you very, welcome. Thank you very much for the call, Ted. We appreciate it, and uh, and I hope you'll uh, keep listening to In Legal Terms. Our phone number, if you'd like to join us, is 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. We're talking about water law with Catherine Janice, Research Counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. With us also is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And uh, there's just a couple minutes before our next break. We have uh, we have a caller who's been who's been holding very patiently, and we appreciate uh, Shannon from Pontotoc for for holding on. Uh, here's uh, here's why I've been uh, delaying you a little bit. Shannon's question is is uh, slightly off of our topic today, but while we've got a couple of minutes before we head to our next break, let's see if we can maybe point her in the right direction uh, in in spite of her not being exactly on our topic today. Shannon, welcome to the program, and what's your question? Well, it's actually a guy, but thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. There, it's there right. I go. There I go making gender assumptions as we in public radio are never supposed to do. Well, Maya culpa. The first time. Maya culpa, sir. And uh, what's your question for us today? Well, I'm actually calling about somebody else that, that had a question. Uh, she uh, was wanting to get a divorce, and uh, the deal is, is uh, uh, the one she was married to, or I'm still married to, is uh, incarcerated, and. Uh, I think will be in there forever, and uh, I was just wondering, is there a, uh, and she's wanting to get a divorce, and for whatever reason or another, she can't uh, get the paper signed or whatever, and I was just wondering, is there is there a law put in place about so many years, or is it just a, a legal, and what legal action? Well, that's, uh, yeah. I should defer to our dean, Debbie Bell, who's the expert in family law, but uh, I'll take a crack at this. Basically, there are uh, provisions that say uh, Mississippi is still a fault-based divorce uh, state. Most states are no fault. But uh, one of the fault-based grounds in Mississippi is long-term incarceration. So I think, you know, that person should be able to, if this if the, their spouse is incarcerated for a long time, should be able to get a divorce on fault-based grounds. And, um, you know, typically, if, if uh, inmates need to sign paperwork. Uh, you know, they are they are involved in lawsuits. They are involved in other things, and so 
uh, typically then the prison will let them sign whatever paperwork they need to sign. But that is a that is one of the fault based grounds in Mississippi. All right, uh, uh, Shannon, does that, does that help you out? Yeah, uh, just just uh, finally. So if uh, if they won't do it, then pretty much that uh, you can get them. You can get it done through a fault based deal. That's correct. I mean, uh, if you you know the way it works is if you file on fault based grounds and the other person didn't show up, then you get a default judgment. Uh, and uh, you know that's as long as the other person never contests that, I think that that should be should be not a problem. You know, not knowing all the circumstances, I can't really give, you know, direct legal advice to that person, obviously, but there, you know, Mississippi does list several fault-based grounds and, and long-term incarceration is, is one of them. All right, Shannon, thank you very much for uh, the phone call. And uh, it is time for that, uh, that uh, last time out. So if you have remaining questions, now is the time to get them in. Our number is 877 877- MPB ring. That's 877-672-7464. Our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. David is holding in Starkville. We'll be to you next, David, right after this time out here on MPB Think Radio. have a big decision to make on November 8th. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. I'm Ezra Wallin for Sharita Brent today. Joining me today, of course, Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, also with us this hour is Catherine Janice, uh Research Counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And we've been taking your phone calls and answering some other questions and talking all about water law today. And uh, the number, if you'd like to squeeze a phone call in before the end of the hour, is 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Uh, before we uh, wrap up the show today, we're back uh, on the phones in Starkville. Uh, as promised, it's David. Good morning, David. What's your question today? Good morning. How are you all doing today? Fine, sir. How are you? I'm making it. Uh, first of all, I want to say I love the Perry Mason theme song. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? I'm glad y'all pulled that out. That's Sam, uh, Sam Wells, uh, our our illustrious producer, uh, making that happen today. But he earned his money today. That that made me smile. No <laughs> doubt. What's your question today? I just want to really go on a thought experiment, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, we're uh, your cell phone's cutting out a little bit. What what what's your question? Can you repeat your question? Uh, yes, sir. Is there any precedent for culpability uh, for like a, a state or a federal government? or neglect of infrastructure, and y'all have mentioned it before, like the Flint, Michigan thing all happened because they switched water sources, but has anyone brought suit against the organization because they just didn't keep up with them? Like, you know, power lines, all on a property, or a levy broke, or something to that effect. I'll, I'll take it off the air. 
All right, neglect of infrastructure, I think, is what I gathered. Is there any kind of uh, is, is there any kind of precedent for somebody basically suing the government or whoever is supposed to be taking care of something for not ca- taking care of that thing which they are supposed to be taking care of? Um, I think generally, yes, there is precedent. What the issue is going to be there is really um, who's bringing the suit and if they have the right to sue it. And so, a lot of times, with these kind of bigger resource um, law issues is what we're seeing is though, you know, someone might have the right to sue and kind of, um, say there's been some kind of violation, you have to really be affected by it. And so, um, that's the real issue you kind of see with those types of lawsuits is do you have the right to even be in court and be challenging it yourself? So, you know, I think we, we elect these people every two years or four years, depending on the, on the office. And I think we need to hold them accountable to do those kind of things. That's really what our, our public servants are supposed to do. Uh, you know, they shouldn't be engaged in self-service. They should be engaged in public service. And so that's how we as voters hold them responsible. All right. Very good advice. Uh, we And, and uh, there was a question. I'm not sure whether we got to it about the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, um, there was a question there over uh, who exactly does have the right to sue uh, and under what circumstances uh, in the Safe Drinking Water Act? Can you can you address that uh, briefly? Sure. And so there are certain reasons why you can sue under the Safe Water Drinking Act, but um, again, they're kind of, as I said, re- kind of going around those kind of issues about whether or not there's been a violation under the procedure of the act. So the act is kind of laying out these things that you're um, water company and the state are supposed to be taken with regards to testing and notification and those kinds of issues. And so if some level of the government is failing there, that's when you get to sue. So in Flint, actually, which has been different than what we've seen in Jackson. So Jackson kind of did the testing. They reported it. They said, we violated the act. Flint, why we're seeing a lot of lawsuits there is because the government didn't do that. And so there's been questions about how they sample that they didn't sample right under the, you know, what the law is saying, that they didn't notify people right um, under the law, that they made these decisions to kind of switch water resources and didn't follow those procedures. And so that's when you get to sue is kind of when whoever's, you know, giving you your water has kind of violated the act in that way. Okay. We've got time to squeeze in uh, one last phone call before we're out today. It's Leslie calling uh, on the road. Leslie, what is your question today? Hi. I read in a novel one time that in North Carolina, any water that flows 100 miles is considered a river. And I wondered if that's universal or if there's a real definition of a river. Um, That is not universal, no. Um, And so, you know, water bodies are called different things all the time. Um, And under the law, what really matters is not necessarily what the water body is called, but um, whether or not it's kind of having this big characteristic that's giving it some kind of water um, right to the public because the public can use it. Very interesting. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Leslie, for calling in legal terms today. Uh, We are talking about water law with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law and with Catherine Janice, Research Counsel for the National Sea Grant Law Center at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, Catherine, while we've got just a minute or two, tell me about the uh, National Sea Grant Law Center and and what you all do there. Sure. And so we're based here at the University of Mississippi School of Law, but um, what our main role is to kind of be kind of the legal research um, 
counsel for the state Sea Grant program. So for those of you who aren't, you know, familiar with the Sea Grant program, like land grant, um, which most people are more familiar in, the coastal states all have these kind of programs funded by the federal government, by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to kind of do this kind of ocean coastal water research and kind of outreach to citizens. And so our role is to kind of work with all those different programs throughout the country on kind of these legal issues that are coming up with kind of ocean and coastal natural resource issues, including water quality and quantity throughout the coastal states and the Great Lakes states as well. All right. Uh, Catherine, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been, it's been great having you on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I had fun. Pro- Professor Gershon, it's good to be with you again as well. And thank you for being with us as always. My pleasure. And thank you, Ezra. You did a great job. Oh, thanks. I'll uh, I'll tell Sharita you said so, and she can buy me lunch or something. <laughs> uh, in Legal Terms is a production of MPB Think Radio uh, and is supported uh, in part by contributions from listeners just like you. And we thank you for the support that you offered us last week and uh, indeed every day. Uh, I'm Ezra Wall in for Sharita Brent, who will return. Our producer and technical director today is Sam Wells. Our Q producer is Kevin Farrell, and I thank them both for their uh, kind assistance, without which this show wouldn't be possible either. I'm Ezra Wall for Sharita Brent. This is In Legal Terms, and we'll catch you next week on MPB Think Radio.